There was uh, once a set of twins, uh, young boys, and their names were Jimmy and Johnny. Now, as they began to get a little bit older, got to early elementary age, Jimmy was becoming the classic Eeyore. I mean, no matter what was going on, no matter what the situation, he always saw the downside of things. Now, his twin, Johnny, on the other hand, was the, had become the classic optimist. No matter what the situation, he always saw the upside. And now, being identical twins, it was, was kind of puzzling because this was a very stark difference. And so a group of psychologists decided that they wanted to do a test to see if they could determine the extent is also, as well as the cause of this great difference in this set of twins. And so each of these young men were placed into a room. There was one-way glass so that they could be observed, but they wouldn't be able to see the observers. And they put Jimmy into one room, and he gave them this great big pile of toys. I mean, anything imaginable for a young boy his age. And in the other room, Johnny had three matchbox cars. Now, as they were watching, Jimmy just sat there complaining that his favorite toy was not in the pile. Well, on the other hand, Johnny began to just laugh and zoom his three cars all over the floor. So they said, okay. They doubled the toys into Jimmy's room, including his favorite toy. And then they took even the three matchbox cars away from Johnny and left them sitting on the floor of now empty room. Well, now Jimmy still sat there pouting and complaining because now there were just simply too many toys and he couldn't possibly just pick one of these toys to play with. And on the other hand, Johnny just stood up and began running around the room, smiling and laughing and saying yippee as he was going. Well, then they left Jimmy with all of his toys and they put Johnny into another room with his great big pile of manure. Jimmy continued to sit there and pout and complain, but Johnny let out a yippee and dove into the middle of that pile and soon began to just take fistfuls of this stuff and throwing it out into the room. He just kept going. And so the scientists, the psychologists ran into the room. They said, Johnny, stop, stop. What in the world are you doing? And still smiling from ear to ear, holding two clumps in his hands, he said, with a pile of manure this big, there's a pony in here somewhere. (laughs) That was not the response that the uh, doctors were expecting, but it's the very definition of being an optimist. You know, as the Apostle Paul writes his letter to the believers in Philippi, It's been approximately five years since he had walked into the temple at Jerusalem only to be illegally arrested. He had been brought up on charges of sedition to the empire, which which carried an automatic death penalty. He had waited for two years for a trial in the city of Caesarea. He was granted an appeal to the emperor of Rome only to suffer a shipwreck along the way. And now he's been waiting for two years under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, wrist to wrist. 
His trial, when it ever, when it does come up, is either going to lead to his freedom or his execution. There's no middle ground. And if he cannot pay for his housing expenses for both him and the guards, then he's going to be put into the dreaded Mamertine prison in Rome. As we know, uh, the church in Philippi has heard about the situation, and so they had sent a generous financial gift to Paul, delivered by a friend by the name of Epaphroditus. It's probably Epaphroditus who is actually writing this letter as Paul is dictating it. And when it's finished, Epaphroditus is going to take this manuscript, this letter, and he's going to go back to the city of Philippi and go back to the church that is located there. And there he's going to stand up and he's going to read this letter to the congregation. Now, when that, as they are listening to that letter, the church is going to be wondering, okay, how is Paul doing? How is Paul making out? He's in this very difficult and precarious situation. He's been there for two years. All these other things have happened. It's been five years since Paul has sniffed an heir as a free man. How's he handling this and how's he doing? Well, as the letter is being read, they get to the verses that um, Tanner read for us this morning and they get the answer. But it's not the answer they would have expected. Because it's as if Paul says, okay, how am I doing? I have great joy. I have great joy. And I rejoice in the situation that God has put me in. I'd like to suggest that's not the response that this church was expecting to hear, considering the situation that Paul finds himself in. You see, incarceration, even if it's a house arrest, is not a place that you think you're going to experience joy. And so they get this response that they're not expecting. I have joy. And you want to know how I'm doing? I'm rejoicing that God has me here because of what God is doing through it. Now, let's take just a moment to remember that how we are defining joy as it's given to us in Scripture. And it's that joy is a settled assurance and confidence in God that leads me to praise Him at all times. It's this settled assurance and confidence in God that leads me to praise Him at all time. I have this assurance in God because He holds me in His love. I have a confidence that God's will for me is ultimately going to be for good. And I therefore determine that I will always praise Him. Now in this passage, Paul is going to explain how he could possibly be experiencing joy and he could possibly be rejoicing in this particular situation that he's in. And as he does this, he's going to give us some insights to how we can have joy and how we can rejoice in all the diverse and ever-changing situations that you and I continuously are finding ourselves in. How do we have joy and rejoice in that kaleidoscope of experience that we call life? Well, Paul's going to give us some insights, and when we're done, we can, uh, we're going to be able to boil it down to this one statement. Paul has confidence in God, and his focus is on Jesus. Paul has confidence in God, and his focus is on Jesus. 
And so let's see how Paul lays this out as we go through this passage. First thing is Paul is confident that God is using his situation to reveal Jesus Christ. He's confident that God is using his situation to reveal Jesus Christ. Look in verses 12 and 13. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now remember, Paul spends all of his days being connected to a Roman guard, wrist to wrist, by a chain that's no more than two to three feet long. And so everywhere Paul goes in this house, the guard is sure to follow. I mean, he's, he's always there. Now, being under house arrest, one of the big advantages is that Paul has the opportunity to have people come in and visit with him. Now, the guards that are there would have been a detail of guards that rotated this responsibility to be chained to Paul. And so the same guys have been spending this time with Paul for the last two years. Paul has met with church leaders. The church in Rome is well established before Paul gets there. And so some of the people that come in are are, are believers. And many of them are probably leaders. And they would have come in to get encouragement and instruction from Paul. We're told at the end of the book of Acts that Paul had Jewish leaders come in from the synagogue and he shared the gospel with them. And so he's he's edifying, he's teaching, he's discipling believers, he's sharing the gospel with anybody who comes in who does not yet know Christ. And two to three feet away is a Roman guard that hears everything he says over and over and over again. It's the definition of a captive audience. And so by now, every one of these guards, they've heard the gospel multiple times. They've heard Paul's story of his missionary journeys, and they heard the story of when he was in Philippi, and they heard the story of how he ended up in Rome many times. They have heard Paul teach of what it means to be a follower of Jesus many times. And so by now, these guards know exactly who Jesus Christ is, or at least who Paul claims he is. They understand that he went to the cross. They, they know that there's this claim of a resurrection. They understand that Paul anticipates he's coming back. And to these tough, battle-tested Romans, this is nonsense. Utter nonsense both in terms of the Roman culture and in particular who they are as the best elite soldiers of the Roman army. This, these guys are the seals. Top of the top, creme de la creme. They're the ones that guard Caesar in his palace as well as taking on responsibilities like they have here. But they've had this up-close look at Paul. They've had the opportunity to see what Paul's really like. See, they've observed what he's doing when there's nobody else in the room. And they've been able to determine that Paul, the apostle, is authentic. What he says and how he acts when there's people in the room is identical to who Paul is when nobody's in the room. And that's the definition of authenticity. 
This joy that Paul's been talking about and that he's saying that he is experiencing is the joy these Roman soldiers see Paul have, whether there's someone in the room or whether he's only him in the guard. And they realize he is authentic. And so over time, some of these guards begin to listen from the heart. And some of them accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. These guys are not gullible. These are not people that can be fooled. They are tough. They are alert. And they've heard it all. They, they have guarded many men in Paul's position. Many men awaiting trial. They've heard every claim of innocence. They've, they've seen men that, that kind of puff themselves up to try to make themselves to be more than what they actually are. But for some reason, as Paul is there and as they get to know Paul over time, they realize that his life is authentic and so they begin to listen to the message. And some of them make this life-changing decision to become a Jesus follower. Within a couple of years, it's going to be a career-changing decision, too, as the church comes under persecution. This is not a decision that they would have made simply because they heard this nonsense. It's a decision that they, that they make, of course, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but they listen to the message because of the authentic life of Paul. You see, in our testimony and our witnessing, Life comes first, then follows the message. Life comes first, then follows the message. People want to see that what we say is authentic in our lives before they want to hear what we say is the gospel truth, literally. And that's taking place here. You can picture one of these guards waiting for everybody to leave and then quietly saying to Paul, Tell me more about this, Jesus. And like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And you can hear Paul explaining the gospel, and you can see both of them bow their head, and this guard gives his life to Christ. And it's happened numerous times because at the, in, in verse 13, Paul says, the gospel is spread throughout all the imperial guard, all through the barracks. Everybody knows. Well, how do they know? There's only a small handful of these soldiers who are actually in Paul's presence. It's because of the ones who have put faith in Christ through Paul's ministry, and now they are beginning to share about Jesus with their fellow soldiers. And so Paul is able to be confident that through his life and testimony, Jesus is being revealed. we can be confident that God will do the same with our lives. Our life is a testimony without words if it's an authentic life for Jesus. We remember back to last week where Paul was praying for these very things. And so if you and I are living a life that's abounding in love, if you and I are living a life in which we consistently are choosing what's God's best for our lives in Scripture. If you and I are being authentic, Christ-like disciples and we live dedicated to bring glory to God, there will be people around your life who will be ready to listen to the message of Christ. 
In our uh, first church, we got to know a guy by the name of Dan. Dan was one of the most gentle, humble, kind people that Denise and I have had the pleasure to know. And, and Dan was a Bible college graduate, but God had chosen a different path. Dan, Dan led dozens and dozens of people that I know of to the Lord and discipled out the gazoo. But he made a living by driving a delivery truck for a water company. And um, I came to realize this, and we used to take teenagers up to New York City for 10 days at a time in the summer to do street evangelism. And so we used to take 25, 30 kids up, and we, we took the school bu- or the church bus. And I asked Dan, would you drive the church bus for us this summer? And so he took some of his valuable vacation time, and he did that. He came with his wife and his young children, and they joined us for the week. And so one of these days, we're going down the city, and Dan's driving the bus, and we've got these kids, and we're singing and having a good time. And I say, Dan, turn right here. This is before Siri and, and, and GPS. And unfortunately, instead of turning onto the four-lane street that I thought we were turning onto, he turned down an alley. Cars parked on both sides, and as Dan's going down this alley, there's no way to do it, go but forward. He's got about six to eight inches on either side of the school bus, and we happen to be in a Hispanic neighborhood, and there was a baseball game going on in the field. And so some of the owners of those cars see what we're doing, and so they're coming over to watch while Dan is inching this bus down this, uh, this um, um, alley. And so then they join in. They begin giving him a hand, and so then some of them jumped in front of the bus, and they're saying, you know, they're trying to direct him through, and of course, they're speaking Spanish, and that's okay, because Dan was fluent in Spanish, and so Dan, the whole time, Dan's doing this. I mean, not rattled. He might as well have been driving a golf cart on a golf course. I mean, he is just as calm as a cucumber. He gets to the end of that, and all the, those guys gather at the end of the alley, and they gave him this big ovation as Dan you know, drove by. That was Dan. Several years after this, Denise and I joined a parachurch ministry where we needed to raise support. And so... In order to um, make financial, you know, have our financial needs met, I went to work for the same spring water company that Dan worked for. And so I worked in the production area. I was on the line, manufacturing the line that put the water in the bottles. And I just want to say that I thank God for that. And when I worked for three years for R.R. Donnelly, because, you know, pastors need to remember what it, what it is to not be working in a church office. And, and some of you know exactly what I'm about to say. When you're in manufacturing, you meet really interesting people. And one of the people I had the opportunity to work with was Pete, who was this big, burly, and I mean, he was the definition of rough-around-the-edges type of guy. And one day, Dan came up to me soon after I'd started working there and to say hello to me before he went out on his route. And he and I chatted for a few moments, and then he left. And Pete came walking up to me and said, you know Danny? And I said, yeah, yeah, I know Dan. And he said, "Ah, he is a really nice guy. He's one of the nicest guys that I know. And he said, "Um, last year when my wife was sick, he came in here almost every day and and he'd ask how my wife was doing. And he would say, you know what, My my wife and I were praying for your wife and we're praying for you and we're praying for your kids and my wife is okay now. And I want to say, Dan, he's a really religious guy, but he's okay. And then he said, his voice changed, it got thoughtful. 
And he said, and he's been asking me to come do a Bible study with them. I think maybe I'll do that. See, Dan, like Paul, Dan is a picture of an authentic disciple of Jesus. You can't be around Dan very long. You may not know it, but you are seeing a reflection of Christ. And when that happens, there are people that will be attracted because God will use you, and then you have the wonderful opportunity to share about Jesus. But it's life first, then message. And so Paul has that assurance. God's using him. God will use you too. He'll use your life at work. He'll use your life in your family. He will use your life around your friends and neighborhood. He will use you with your extended family to be the aroma of Jesus with people who need to know him. Then, Paul's example was encouraging other believers to share the gospel. His example was encouraging others to share the gospel. Look at verse 14. It says, And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, as I mentioned, the church in Rome was firmly established when Paul arrived there and had gotten there two years earlier, which means that there were also established leaders in the church there. And some of those like leaders undoubtedly met with Paul, but as we're going to see, different leaders had different responses to Paul being there. Now, while the official persecution against the church by the Roman government is still three to four years away, Christianity was not a popular religion in Rome. Christians were suspect because of these really strange superstitions and beliefs that they had as far as the Romans were concerned. And they're also where they, there was a derisive type of attitude, condescending attitude toward them by the Roman culture around them. And so many believers decided to keep their faith on the down low. Keep it quiet. You know, I'll let my life do the talking, but I'm not going to be verbally sharing about my faith in Jesus. And so Paul, in this two years that he's been here, his example of how he's sharing his faith under arrest the fact, the testimony of Roman guards coming to know Jesus, that begins to change. And some of these believers in, in, the, in the church there in Rome, encouraged by Paul's example, they begin to share their faith. But we're also going to see that there's some other people who are envious of Paul and are, are competitive against Paul. And so they begin to share their faith, but for two very different reasons. And so we read about this, uh, group, these two different groups of people, starting in verse 15. It says, Paul writes, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, what in the world's going on here? Well, see, some of them, some of these uh, believers, are encouraged by Paul's example and by 
through that encouragement, they do begin to share their faith more openly. They're bolder. They, they are willing to share their faith without fear of the pushback that they can anticipate and maybe even the consequences that might come from sharing. They're motivated by their love for Jesus and they're motivated by their love for their unsaved friends, family, and neighbors. And now that love and Paul's encouragement, they overcome that fear barrier and they begin to share the gospel. And it took Paul's example to encourage them to take that step. See, they understand and respect Paul's imprisonment. They realize that he is in Rome because of his love and boldness for Jesus Christ and the gospel. And they realize that God himself has brought Paul there not only to be a prisoner, but to encourage them as the church and to share the gospel as he is there. And so they love him for this. They respect him for this. And they seek to follow his godly example. But there's other believers, and they're they're believers too, unfortunately. They're threatened by Paul. Paul's a threat to their position as leaders. Paul's stepped into something, and they're, they're hearing all this about Paul this and Paul that. And it's like, well, what about us? We're the leaders. And they begin to resent what's going on here. And so they begin to preach the gospel to prove that they're just as good as Paul is. Maybe even better. They do it because they want the attention Paul is getting. They want that attention. They want people going, I want to share the gospel like Len or whoever. I just, they, there's, envy is the word that Paul uses here. And that means that not only do I desire what you have, but I want to take it away from you. I want to discredit you in the process. So I'm going to discredit you, and then I'm going to take on your, what, your reputation. I'm going to take on your being noticed. I'm going to take on you, what you are being applauded for. I will be applauded for, but I'm not satisfied with that. I want to discredit you in the process. And they do it out of a sense of rivalry. There's a competitiveness here, a hatred almost. And it's unfortunate that these are things that happen in the church. <laughs> if, we are, uh, if we allow ourselves to let any envy or sense of rivalry and competitiveness come up between us. Now, Paul deserves the respect and the love of these brothers, but they are discrediting him. They've got some twisted form of logic where they say the only reason Paul is here is because he wants to take over and he wants to be the leader. And, or maybe they're even saying, you know what, he deserves to be in prison. And if he's in prison, then that discredits him. So why follow him? Follow us. And Paul's response is pretty remarkable. Paul's response to all this is, I praise God that the gospel is shared. I'll let him sort out the motives. I praise God that the gospel is being shared. I will let him sort out the motives. Look with me at verse number 18. He says, what then? Which is to say, so what? (laughs) Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He rejoices for those who love him and are encouraging him, and he rejoices in those who are seeking to discredit him. 
And he says, I rejoice in both as they share the gospel because it's about the gospel being shared. I'll let God sort out the motives. Chuck Swindoll um, paraphrases this verse this way. He says, so what if some preach with wrong motives? Furthermore, some may even be overly impressed with themselves and take unfair shots at me. Who cares? What really matters is this. Christ is being proclaimed, and that thought intensifies my joy. All the other stuff, I leave to God to handle. Remarkable display of maturity. But let's focus down on the positive example here. Enough of that. Last week, we saw that the purpose of every believer and the purpose of every church is to know and honor God. That we are here to glorify and praise the Lord in everything we do in every part of our lives. Well, here we see our mission. This is the mission of every believer, and it's the mission of every church family, and that is this, to be making disciples of Jesus by sharing his love and his gospel. That's our mission. The purpose of my life is to glorify God. How do I do that? By, you, by making disciples. By life first, showing his love, message second, sharing the gospel, and seeing people come to know Jesus Christ. That's my mission in life. And when you and I begin to talk about that, when you and I go, you know what? I've got this person, and they need to be a believer. Would you join me in praying for them and then pray for me because I'm looking for an opportunity to share the gospel? You know what happens when one and then three and then seven and then 10 and then 20 people within a church begin having those conversations and praying together for all the people we know who don't know Jesus and then comes the opportunity to share? Praise God, this person accepted Christ. And then we see that person sitting in a pew that generates an energy, and then we will have joy together in it. We'll have joy together in it. We can be examples to one another of how God can use our lives to first reflect Jesus and then use our lips to share Him. And there's joy when we do it together. And finally, Paul's joy leads him to praise God regardless of the outcome of his situation. Regardless of how this turns out, he's going to praise God. Look at verse, uh, the last part of verse 18. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's saying, I rejoice that through your prayers and the Holy Spirit, I will honor Jesus Christ regardless of the outcome of my trial. I'll honor him by, and, and I'll be released, or I will honor him in death. But it's neat that he takes these two things that you see together so often. He says, first of all, I praise God, I rejoice that you pray for me. 
it's really kind of neat because he's just got done saying, hey, I pray for you, and here's how I pray for you. And now he's saying, and thank you, because I know you pray for me too. Prayer is such a powerful bond between us when we pray with and for each other. And he says, and not only that, but the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that's the Holy Spirit. I know the Holy Spirit is going to fill me and give me, enable me to honor God, to honor Christ, regardless of the outcome of my upcoming trial. Christ will be honored in my life or my death. You pray, the Holy Spirit enables And through your prayers and through the ministry of the Spirit in my life, I will honor Christ in my upcoming trial. And regardless of whether I'm released or I die, praise God, because Christ is honored. And Paul is content with whichever God chooses to do. In verse 21, one of the most famous verses of Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul's saying, if God preserves my life and I go free, that's great. Praise God, because that leads to more opportunities for ministry and fruitful labor. That means Holy Spirit done ministry with Holy Spirit given fruit. And if I, if God chooses for me to be martyred, praise God, he'll be honored in my death. And on top of that, I will be in the presence of Jesus forever. So praise God either way. You know, Paul's able to say then sincerely, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. With all sincerity. With all truth. And this comes from this growing relationship that he has with Jesus that's brought an ever deeper closeness with Jesus over the years. Paul didn't come here all at once. He's arrived here after decades of following Christ. And he's got the grace in this moment to be able to truthfully say, it doesn't matter whether I live or die, praise God. I have to admit that I read those words and I'm challenged by them because I'm not there. To be able to say that the sweetness of Jesus in heaven is greater in my heart than the sweetness of God's blessings here, not quite there yet. But by the grace of God, I'm trying to grow there. To be able to sincerely say like Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But Paul's already there. He's grown there over time. Paul has confidence in God, and he's focused on Jesus Christ. He's confident that God is using a situation to reveal Jesus. His example is encouraging other believers to share the gospel, and so he's got joy, and he praises God regardless of how the, uh, the trial goes, regardless of the outcome, life or death. And Paul would encourage us to follow that example to say, hey, in your life, in your situation, just put full confidence in God and then focus on Jesus and then experience his joy. 
back in 2011, I had a life-changing opportunity to um, join two other pastors, and we went to India for a missions trip. Uh, we're there for almost three weeks, and um, the one was my senior pastor, Ed, and then he, has, he had a good friend in Pennsylvania, a pastor by the name of Alvin, and then myself. And one of the things we did was we had the opportunity to teach some classes in a Bible college there. And so we stayed at a guest house there on campus, and one of the last nights we were there, the gentleman that we were working with all week and that, as necessary, acted as our interpreter, came in, and he had a gentleman about my age now <laughs> who stood about that high, probably weighed maybe 100 pounds, and um, this, just you could see the peace and the joy of the Lord was palatable. And so, Ken, through the translator, because this particular gentleman didn't know English, he explained that he had come for us to pray for him, the three American pastors, and that his wife had gone home to be with the Lord just the year before. And so this pastor was going to Nepal, north of us, and was going to share the gospel with two or three believers from Nepal in an area that had no church with the, with, the, with the prayerful intent of planting the first church ever in that part of Nepal. Now, this was a pastor who had gone through imprisonment. He'd been beaten and threatened his entire ministry in India. But Nepal was a whole new level because Nepal, it's illegal to share the gospel. And Nepal, it's one of the toughest countries in the world and if you are, in this, at this time, if you were caught as someone from the outside bringing the gospel in, it was very likely that in a, in a moment of mob violence, you were going to die. And so we said, how can we pray for you? And this gentleman said, pray that by the grace of God, that if he preserves my life, we will be able to share the gospel and that we will be able to plant a church. But if God chooses for me to die, that I would honor him in my death because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right out of this section of Scripture. All three of us cried as we laid our hands on him. And the only thought that I had was, my goodness, I ought to be kneeling in front of this brother and ask him to pray for me because his faith is a lot greater than mine is. They left, and then we sat, we just stood there in silence for a few moments, and then Alvin said, gentlemen, we've just been in the, in the presence of the Apostle Paul, and we had, in spirit. I'll never forget that moment, and I'll never forget that challenge. You know, you and I will never probably, in most probably will never be asked to put our lives on the line in order to share the gospel. But may we do it faithfully and joyfully in this place that God's put us. To the honor and the glory of the Lord and the joy of doing it together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the joy that you give. We thank you that joy is in you, that joy is in being confident and having assurance in who we are 
through Christ in your sight as our Heavenly Father, and that you then give us joy to rejoice in all situations. And so, Father, may we with joy be the presence of Christ and with joy be the voice of Christ in this community to the wonder and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God, may we see fruit, your fruit, in our lives and through our lives, now and in the days ahead. In Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand and close together.